my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Unabashed. The most unpredictable. Becomes a headline. The most volatile. Outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grand Tamasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Beshnev. Late last week, Russia launched a full-scale military invasion of Ukraine, deploying the might of the Russian military to conduct a hostile takeover of its sovereign neighbor. The invasion has prompted a flurry of diplomatic activity as the world tries to find an urgent solution to the crisis. Over the past few days, India's role has received significant attention as it has neither condoned Russia's behavior nor necessarily condemned it in the strongest terms. India has a long strategic relationship with Russia that it can ill afford to rupture, especially when it has thousands of Chinese troops on its northern border. At the same time, there are increasing calls from the West for India to quote-unquote get off the fence. To discuss India-Russia relations in the wake of the Ukraine crisis, I'm joined today by Raji Rajagopalan. Dr. Rajagopalan is the director of the Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology at the ORF Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. She has extensive experience, both inside and outside of government, on issues of Indian foreign policy, national security. I am pleased to welcome her to the show for the very first time. Raji, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, uh, Milan, for having me on this show. So I, I want to start with like a very amateur 30,000 foot question. Uh, and I want to preface it by saying I got an email from a friend who studies political risk around the world. And his email went something like this. He said, look, I understand Russia is a major arms supplier to India, but I really don't understand why is it that Russia-India ties run so deep? And so maybe I, for the uninitiated among us, we could start there. Raji, how do we think about the kind of foundations of India-Russia ties? It's a great question to start. Uh, and I think the, the source of the India-Russia relationship uh, goes to, I think, a deep strategic empathy, uh, at least on the Indian side towards Russia, in the sense that we feel very strongly supportive of Russia. And where does that really come from? It's, I think it's a part of the, uh, uh, it is India's post-colonial heritage. So India, right from the beginning, has had an understandable, uh, in a sense, anti-Western sentiment, considering that we were colonized by the British. Um, so there is that element that comes into play. Uh, in addition, there was also the whole Cold War politics, the anti-Western sentiments during the entire Cold War period. And so this, in a sense, translating to some sort of an anti-Americanism uh, because we were on the opposite sides during the entire Cold War, uh, which also translated to pro-Russia feelings, in a sense. So, now, of course, Nehru was much more uh, sympathetic to the Soviet Union. Uh, there were, of course, others, even on the uh, Indian political right. Uh, so Russia did, or the Soviet Union did, enjoy a lot of support, India's plans of uh, economic development on the Soviet model of five-year plans, a lot of assistance uh, for its steel plants and kind of things. So uh, it built a strong support within India in a sense. And since the 1960s, uh, Soviet Union was also seen as supporting India consistently. Uh, and this was particularly the case during the 71 war. 
uh, which had a big impact because uh, it was considered as India's proudest moment. So the Soviet Union was seen as helping India with multiple vetoes within the UN Security Council and so on and so forth. But even generally, the Soviet Union was seen as uh, sympathetic to India's needs with no strings attached to its support for India, uh, whether it is the weapons transfers or political and diplomatic support, whereas the U.S. assistance was always perceived as there are strings attached, there are certain conditions and so on and so forth. But if you look at it, I think the history is actually a lot more complicated. Uh, the Soviet Union support has never been continuous towards India. For instance, 1962, uh, the war with, uh, uh, with China uh, in fact, the Soviet Union abandoned India uh, during those critical weeks of the war because of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, and they needed China on their side. They, of course, came after the war was over. Uh, similarly, in 1965, the Tashkent Agreement, and even after the Tashkent Agreement, Soviet Union uh, adopted a neutral attitude between India and Pakistan. Uh, supplied even Pakistan with some uh, small weaponry and weapon systems, and so on and so forth, in order to demonstrate its neutrality. Um, come 71, the Soviet Union was quite opposed to the war, tried very hard to prevent India from going to war. Uh, it was quite unhappy with the vetoes that it had to do within the UN Security Council and in the General Assembly. But uh, you had Soviet Union and a few of its friendly states who stood with India. But I think it was more uh, essentially Prime Minister Indira Gandhi's smart maneuvering of the Soviet Union that finally pushed Moscow to do what it did. Uh, certainly, they did not support India very happily during those days. Um, so therefore, overall, when you look at it, there is a deep well of sympathy that goes beyond just weapons. There's a deep sympathy across political and intellectual uh, spectrum, uh, especially the elite perceptions. Um, if you look at the current uh, crisis, you don't see any demonstration calling out uh, the Russian behavior. And contrast this with the Iraq war demonstration in 2003, when Prime Minister Vajpayee brought out uh, supporting the uh, uh, sort of uh, supporting the U.S. in very minimal ways in, uh, during that time. Um, so, uh, so that's a, that historical, and we are very, very uh, historically we have been remained very supportive of Russia, and that support continues today also. And there is some hesitancy to break away from Russia completely. I think I think that is what is kind of holding the uh, India-Russia relations even now to some extent. But there's a sense in recent years, despite all of this, that not all is well in the Russia-India relationship. You had a piece for ORF, uh, which was on the eve of Vladimir Putin's summit with Prime Minister Modi. And you noted that Putin's visit at that time, and this was in December of last year, was seen as an effort to repair the damage done to the relationship over the last couple of years which have seen kind of India and Russia drift apart. What was the reason for damage control? What what was going on behind the scenes that, that required things to be patched up? Yeah, definitely over the last uh, at least five years or so, India's concerns about China has brought it uh, a lot closer to the U.S., U.S. partners, uh, whether it is Japan, Australia, and so on and so forth. Uh, at the same time, Russia has increasingly become closer to China. Um, and that has basically meant that there has been some tension in the relationship uh, with Russia's objection to the Quad or the uh, concept of the Indo-Pacific. These are things that Russia has come to increasingly uh, very strongly oppose and take very strong uh, positions on vis-a-vis uh, -vis India. And Russia has been rather undiplomatic in their demonstration of their frustration 
of India's evolving position and strategies. Um, so look at the, some of the uh, comments, for instance, from Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, and the very strong reaction, uncharacteristic strong reaction from the Ministry of External Affairs uh, reflects, in a sense, the difficulties that are uh, beginning to creep in this relationship, uh, with Russia essentially echoing uh, China's concerns about the Quad or the evolving Indo-Pacific strategies as mechanisms to counter China, Moscow is essentially uh, being increasingly insensitive to India's concerns. Uh, in fact, Lavrov raised his first, uh, first time this, his objections uh, when he was in New Delhi for the Raisina Dialogue in 2020. And of course, uh, he had made repeated assertions on the same point saying that India has become an object of the Western uh, countries, persistent and aggressive policies um, uh, aimed at anti-China gains and so on and so forth. So this has not been uh, sort of, uh, uh, this has not been an easy uh, relationship in, uh, in recent times. Uh, and I would think the increasingly adversarial nature of relations with China, uh, specifically after the uh, Galvan conflict, uh, it is India is bound to get closer to the U.S. and U.S. partners, whereas uh, uh, and uh, uh, who also uh, share similar threat perceptions about China uh, and engage in actively in millilaterals that are shaping up in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, and I think uh, Russia will find it increasingly difficult to come to uh, sort of appreciate or understand India's geopolitical concerns and why we partner with the uh, with the U.S. and other partners. So I think there are going to be uh, these problems are not going to go away. And I think this is the damage that uh, we were, uh, I think Putin's visit was trying to do, um, sort of a damage correction. Uh, so. On the one hand, you have the military ties still somewhat um, going strong, uh, at least the arm, arms purchases. But politically, there are increasing divergences and difficulties. But the point, key point is that India does not want to write off the relationship with Russia, like I said. Therefore, India has felt the need to engage in activities that could repair in some of the damages. So Putin-Modi summit happened. And earlier last year, even Lavrov was in Delhi on a similar mission. So I think there is certain recognition that we need to keep this relationship going and keep it on a, some sort of a balance. But I think that balance is becoming very difficult to um, sustain in a sense. Let me ask you just on the defense bit, because in that same ORF note, and we'll link to that in our notes, you noted that despite the fact India has done its best to try to diversify its defense trade partners, Russia continues to maintain a dominance. I think it, it supplies about 70% of India's defense inventory, right? So on the one hand, we hear a lot about growing defense deals between India and the United States, countries of Europe, Israel. But despite this growth, it still seems that uh, Russia still dominates. Is that a fair judgment in your view? Yes, uh, <clears throat> it is a fair judgment. And India is still dependent on Russia. Uh, partly, this is a legacy issue. So India is still buying uh, for instance, uh, most recently, I think that over the last couple of years, India has agreed to buy three more kilo-class submarines. Uh, these are the refurbished uh, submarines that will join the nine other kilo-class submarines that are already uh, with the Indian Navy. Uh, similarly, India decided to buy an additional 400 T-90 battle tanks from Russia, uh, joining the 1,000-plus T-90s that the Indian Army already has. Um, and if you look at the Indian tank infantry, for instance, except for the Arjun tanks, that 100 plus uh, numbers, uh, the rush, rest of the in, uh, tank infantry is the other uh, Russian T-72s or T-90s, which is an indicator of the close historical India-Russia military relations. But you, so if you look at the 
uh, last few years, there have been no major deals. Of course, the S400 uh, is a major deal, which is uh, worth more than $5 billion. But otherwise, we are still just buying some of the old ones that we have in this, uh, within the Indian, uh, Indian military. And so despite the Indian efforts, uh, the Indian efforts at reducing dependency on Russia has not been entirely successful. And this is to do with partly the legacy issue. So it's going to be difficult to cut off completely immediately. Uh, we also need spares and other supplies. Uh, but you're right, despite the efforts for more than a decade at diversifying the, the Indian defense trade partners, the Russian component uh, in the Indian defense inventory is still um, a sizable one to the tune of uh, 70% or thereabouts. Uh, but this is something that India has to be careful about given the changing dynamics in the strategic ties between Russia and China and the kind of arms transactions that are taking place uh, between Moscow and Beijing in a sense. Let me kind of fast forward to the current crisis where India appears to be walking a very, very narrow tightrope, right? There was a key Security Council vote last week. It abstained from condemning the Russian invasion. But India's UN ambassador uh, publicly issued a quote-unquote explanation of vote that made it clear that the Modi government was not particularly happy with Russia's behavior. Now, we all know that India is under intense international pressure to take a much harder line on the Putin regime. What do you think is the current thinking in New Delhi as we speak? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, India is doing a, a very difficult balancing act. The Indian statement, of course, was, like I said, very critical of Russia without naming Russia. So it's uh, it's very clear that India is not happy with Putin uh, putting India on the spot. But I think there is still a lot of confusion in Delhi about how to manage this. Uh, because it's clear that India needs its new partners, the US, Japan, Australia, France, the rest of Europe. Uh, and all of India's new partners are united against Russia. But at the same time, India, like I said, cannot completely give up on Russia, especially because of the factors we discussed, like the military dependency, popular and political support, as well as the elite opinion within India, uh, which is still a sort of a, a pro-Russia uh, in that regard, in that sense. So India would ideally like to have not found in the situation, or uh, the situation just goes away, but that is not going to happen, it's just wishful thinking. Um, so there is, of course, intense pressure on India. Uh, in fact, by, President Biden told the reporters that it was pressing India on its stance on the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, and added that the issue has not been resolved completely. Uh, and in fact, the only other country uh, in the region uh, or the region that has taken a position similar to that of India is China. And of course, you have ASEAN and the uh, United Arab Emirates who have uh, taken similar positions, but none of them are major partners of India when it comes to dealing with the kind of challenges, strategic challenges that India is uh, confronted with in the Indo-Pacific region. So India is, is in a bit of a pickle, uh, but will, I believe it will tread that uh, thin line. Uh, it is not likely that India will openly criticize in uh, Russia. It will be, uh, it'll make it clear that it's not happy with Russia's action, like the uh, explanatory note has uh, been very, very uh, clear and categorical. Um, but I think uh, India has talked multiple times to the Ukrainian leadership, including the Ukrainian president, uh, which I'm sure Russia is not happy about. And uh, most recently, uh, most uh, a, couple, a few hours ago, you got the news that India is now offering humanitarian assistance to Ukraine following a request from the Ukrainian ambassador in India uh, at a meeting, following a meeting with the Indian Foreign Secretary Shringla. So in a sense, the kind of position that India is beginning to show is possibly a result of the uh, kind of pressure that uh, India is immensely under. 
because all of its new partners, like I said, are are united against India, imposing economic and other uh, penalties against Russia, whereas India has not even named Russia. So it's walking a thin, uh, a very difficult uh, balancing uh, line in a sense. But uh, I think uh, India is certainly uh, showing that it's, it's not happy with the situation. Hey, Grant the Marshall listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Marshall, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. So I just want to ask you, kind of, if we look into the future, you know, if India continues to pursue this middle ground approach, I'm wondering what the ramifications might be for the U.S.-India relationship, right? So there's some foreign affairs analysts who are warning that the Biden administration would have to contemplate CATSA sanctions on India uh, for its purchase uh, of the Russian-made S-400 missile system. Um, you know, you have written previously about India's place in the new U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy. Many people in Washington view India as the linchpin to that strategy. Do you worry that the current crisis could spiral out of control and end up having these negative spillover effects on the U.S.-India relationship? So let me uh, do the uh, CATSA bit, uh, take the first uh, CATSA bit. Sure. Uh, I don't think the CATSA will happen. The U.S. State Department, of course, recently said that they have not made a decision on it. And I think it's unlikely because uh, S-400 deal happened before the CATSA legislation came about uh, and the U.S. knew about the deal. Uh, second, the CATSA legislation came about not necessarily against India. So whether this has, uh, this will actually go uh, uh, happen or not, it's something. So there are the questions. Uh, the U.S. has incentives to give India a waiver, but again, it's not certain that it, that is the way it's going to work. If the U.S. goes ahead with the CATSA sanctions on India, it could potentially have significant negative effect on the on the U.S. Uh, the whole image of the U.S. as a reliable partner; those debates will kickstart and. Uh, the, uh, and the larger political uh, uh, political uh, opinion, as well as the especially the elite perception of the U.S. Uh, as an unreliable partner and so on and so forth, is going to it'll sort of take us back to the late 1990s but, uh, and the sanctions in the wake of the nuclear tests. Exactly, absolutely. So from the 1970s onwards, we have had the sanctions uh, thing hanging in the uh, in the uh, in the on this India-U.S. relationship the post 1974, then 98, and this is going to bring back those all those negative uh, sort of uh, perception about the U.S. and this is going to take back the relations and uh, and I think that's why I kind of feel that uh, there is um, even on the Ukraine issue I feel that there is some understanding in the U.S. Uh, about the Indian compulsions on the U Ukraine issue, uh, and I I would think that both you can expect both sides uh, to work hard to resolve that difference. In fact, even uh, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, as well as uh, uh, External Affairs Minister Jayashankar, when they met in the uh, Quad Foreign Ministerial Meeting in Melbourne, they talked about, and they, uh, later on they said that 
the relationship has matured to a level where they can dif- they can discuss even some of the most difficult issues and so on and so forth so i think there will be efforts from both sides to make sure that these uh, differences don't become serious impediments and some ways to resolve this difference i think they would that would be found and this could possibly involve at an unofficial level uh, to not to engage further in any major defense deal with russia in the future or reducing its existing purchases and so on and so forth so i don't see it as um spiraling out of control because i think both sides know that the relationship is important both benefit from the relationship washington uh, benefits from having india in its corner as it deals with china and india has enormous benefits too from its partnership with the united states um so china and the broader strategic concerns in the indo pacific will keep both on the same side i am uh, uh, on the same side Ukraine and Russia are of course unavoidable distractions but the Indo-Pacific theater requires the two to work together um so spiraling out of control is very unlikely uh, of course both can individually balance china without coordinating and one can say that they don't need each other but it seems unlikely because the benefits of cooperation are far greater and therefore it is highly unlikely that the current crisis or russia will have a lasting in- impact on the us india ties And I would just say, you know, in terms of the public statements, the State Department spokesperson also put out a statement which was very balanced, saying that they understand that India basically is in a tricky situation, and and we're working together on on trying to address the situation. Um, speaking of the Indo-Pacific theater, you know, if you go back to a couple of months ago, the U.S. was harshly criticized uh, in many quarters in India and around the world for its very messy withdrawal from Afghanistan. but the one benefit that some saw was that maybe this meant we were finally serious about shifting our gaze towards the indo-pacific now you have a major land war in europe how concerned are you that the west and its partners are going to take their eye off of the china ball perhaps giving even more space to xi jinping to kind of expand china's quote unquote zone of influence uh there is of course some concerns but i think it is not just limited to india it's uh, pretty uh, widespread uh, including in the us i would say um and here i think china has been helpful because china's belligerent behavior uh including use of military muscle as well as uh, trade and economic coercion against countries like australia south korea uh these have in a sense helped in consolidating the us as well as the broader regional uh, many countries their indo pacific strategy so there is a strong strategic concerns even within the us are uh, that china is the primary problem and the us has to focus on the indo pacific uh of course there is some question about how to balance the different commitments that uh, the us has and that's a, that debate is ongoing in a sense but i don't think i'm particularly concerned about the us losing its focus on the indo pacific uh, i think before the biden administration came into office there was a lot of uh, a lot of uh, apprehension in a sense within the region as to how uh, the us the new leadership is going to be uh, in dealing with china and its focus on the indo pacific how it's going to play out but i think uh, the russian in- invasion itself is uh, is definitely a problem but in in a non intended way uh, it may actually have helped the us um europe for instance suddenly recognizes that 
the world is a lot more nastier a place, a lot more difficult a place, and it needs to spend more more on its defense. Uh, Germany has just announced that it will spend about 2% of the GDP on its defense, providing emergency funding for boosting its military forces. And Germany traditionally has been the worst culprit in terms of how it depends, uh, how much it spends on uh, defense, for instance. So the Russian invasion has at one stroke forced the European countries to confront their security problem in a manner um, that I think repeated American calls and pleadings over the many decades have not really had. Um, so, as you know, the U.S. has been asking for several decades now to asking the NATO countries to expand their defense spending. And for five decades almost, you haven't, uh, the, these countries have not done that, despite many promises. And now, suddenly, NATO countries are beginning to take a better hold of their security, spending more on their security. And that could reduce the pressure on the U.S. in Europe. And, of course, uh, we have other countries potentially joining NATO. Both Finland and Sweden joined the NATO summit a few days ago in order to coordinate their action. So in a sense, I think Putin's actions may have actually helped the U.S. by forcing the European countries to share uh, a bigger burden, part of the burden in a sense. So the balance between Europe and the Indo-Pacific in terms of the U.S. attention, uh, of course, will remain an issue always, but I'm doubtful that the U.S. will uh, turn away from the Indo-Pacific in any serious manner. Raji, I want to kind of come back to an area that we started this conversation on, which was talking about kind of Indian support for Russia. I've been surprised by how many voices in India, at least on social media, which I realize is not an accurate reflection of all reality, uh, but how many voices appear to be if not sympathetic to Putin, at least focusing the bulk of their ire on Ukraine, on misguided NATO expansion, on the Biden administration, other actions taken by the West. Is this, in your view, just kind of residual anti-Western sentiment or is there something else sort of going on? I think, like I said in the beginning, there is both the deep strategic sympathy for Russia, but also a fairly strong current of anti-Americanism. Americanism. Uh, in both the left and the right of the Indian political spectrum that runs from time to time, depending on the situations, uh, possibly the only thing that brings both the right and the left together on the same side. Right. It's America. <laughs> uh, exactly. And the anti-Americanism uh, comes, of course, as a consequence of the Cold War politics back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the U.S., of course, wanted to align with India, but in India's unwill unwillingness was a serious issue at that time. Uh, and therefore, they went along with Pakistan. Uh, because mainly we were non-aligned and Pakistan had no difficulty aligning with the U.S. Uh, of course, this alignment was not against India, but uh, and this was part of a larger uh, global geopolitics, but the U.S. was seen as aligning aligned against India um, and American position on Kashmir, not calling out Pakistan, uh, even when Pakistan was the aggressor, uh, the U.S. throwing its full weight behind Pakistan during the 71 war, uh, despite the genocide, the U.S. sending the Task Force 74, the Enterprise Mission, none of this is forgotten and none of this has helped in a sense. And of course, the uh, U.S. non-proliferation, uh, nuclear non-proliferation policies, its technology export control regimes, uh, all of them, in a sense, were targeting India, the 1998 test, the U.S. leading the sanctions thereafter. All of these are reasons for the anti-Americanism in India. But like I said, in the case of the India-Russia relations, history is, of course, a lot more complicated. Uh, but at a popular level and at an even elite level, these have not been completely understood or acknowledged, I would say. 
in fact, the U.S. provided the largest economic aid to India. The U.S. sent its air force during the 62 war. It did some exercises uh, with the objective of sending a message to China. And even the 71 war, you have, of course, Nixon and Kissinger were against India, but not the rest of the administration and so on and so forth. Uh, the U.S. Uh, coming to India as some sort of a security guarantor prior to 71, of course, not a formal one. And uh, this changed also after 1971 when it made very clear that it will not come to India's aid if there was a war with China. And more recently, you have the U.S.-India nuclear deal, which is uh, which is a, a major game changer moment in, in the relationship, because even though Russia and France were interested in, in doing nuclear commerce with India, neither Moscow nor Paris did enjoy that kind of clout or influence to change the global rules of the game. So it took the U.S. under Pre President Bush to alter the global rules and India's own status and its ability to engage in nuclear commerce. So the reality is that it's much uh, uh, the U.S.-India relations are much deeper and wider, but I think one should also take note of the fact that it is this the anti-Americanism is primarily an, Ameri an elite phenomena, because if you look at the repeated opinion surveys that come about every uh, every year, uh, they have shown that there is strong affection for the U.S. and therefore I would say that the anti-Americanism, uh, those sentiments to some extent, is an elite part of the elite opinion, what you might call an IAC crowd or a card market crowd <laughs> in a sense. Uh, the, the the con market gang uh, st strikes back. Uh, j just a question on India's current position, Raji. You know, one of the arguments that you hear sometimes, and it's come out in the op-ed pages and elsewhere, is that, look, by walking this kind of fine line, middle ground approach, India risks creating a precedent that is going to be very unhelpful to it vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, right? Because India is certainly very concerned about Chinese action uh, on the contested border, China occupying Indian territory, and that if they don't speak up now, the chance that others may be willing to turn a blind eye if something even more significant were to happen uh, uh, on India's northern border would be higher. Do you buy that idea? Or do you think that most countries are, are able to, to understand the difficult diplomatic and strategic position India finds itself in right now? Um so India is in a, is in a, is in a tricky place uh, when it comes to, uh, on the one hand, we have the uh, the problems with uh, China. And the problems with China, I believe it is just uh, the, usually we look at the territorial border and territorial issue as the biggest issue. But I think that's only part of the problem. And I think the main uh, core of the problem between India and China is that uh, China is just not willing to see another that country that is also rising at the same time. And today... You have the simultaneous rise of uh, India, uh, China as the uh, as the most significant player, uh, Japan returning to a more normal uh, nation, and uh, India rising at its own pace. Uh, we, even though we might be uh, two or three generations behind that of China, and the of course the return of Russia as a major uh, Eurasian player in a sense. So you have the simultaneous rise of uh, three or four players at the same time. You have all of these players have. Uh, unresolved border and territorial sovereignty related issues. And I think this is, uh, and of course, uh, China does not want to see any peer uh, competitor in its immediate neighborhood or even in the broader uh, spectrum in a sense. Um, so I think that's part of the problem. It does put, and but the fact that we do have a sort of a, um, a sort of very live and active border and territorial issue puts us in a very different, uh, difficult space. Uh, on the one hand, we, we want to have some sort of balance 
balance or some semblance of normalcy in our relationship with China. But at the same time, uh, when it comes to political and strategic and security issues, we are not with China. We we have serious differences, and therefore we want to partner with the U.S. U.S. allies uh, increasingly over the last few years. Um, with Japan and Australia, um, so it, I think it it does India does face serious dilemma in how to pursue all of this. But I think India has come to the couple of different conclusions. One, we don't want to see an Asia that is dominated by one single power. So even when uh, External Affairs Minister Dr. Jayashankar talks about a non-hegemonic Asia without naming China, it is very clear that he's referring to China because nobody else has shown the tendencies towards a, a being a hegemon. Uh, second is a rules-based order, which is very, very important, uh, which is, again, uh, sort of uh, uh, which China, again, plays a very little regard for, in a sense. So I think in uh, in many of these ways, I think it is very clear that we we are not with China on the same page. We want some, some semblance of normalcy. So, uh, but at the same time, uh, we do have serious difficulties. So the Indian foreign policy is confronted with serious dilemma in how to manage this relationship. But I think the reality is that uh, despite the fact of strategy, uh, despite the talk of strategic autonomy and independent foreign policy, I think what India does on the ground is what we need to go by. And there, I think India is making some smart choices to partner with U.S., uh, uh, Japan, Australia, France, and other European powers as well. So I think that's the going to be the reality because Indo-Pacific theater is going to be the serious uh, uh, sort of a scene of action. Uh, and I think there, even if all of us come together uh, without the U.S., it's still not enough to balance China. My guest on the show this week is Dr. Raji Rajagopalan. She is the director of the Center for Security, Strategy, and Technology at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi. Raji, this is a, a kind of a moving target of a story. Developments seem to be uh, changing uh, faster than we can keep up with them. But thank you so much for sharing your time and insights uh, with all of us and with our listeners. Thank you so much, Milan, for having me. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. This podcast is an HT Smartcast original and is available on htsmartcast.com, India's fastest growing podcasting platform. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthamasha.com. Production assistance comes from Caroline Duckworth, Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff J. Pranada is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities.